Hi friends, I'm Abby Feeder, Certified Life and Fertility Coach, and you're listening to The Fertility Check. This show is all about the road to parenthood, which is never the same for everyone, and our guests' professional success along the way. I had to take the last couple weeks off because of pure heart protection. Things in this world have been absolutely insane, and I haven't been able to focus on much else other than Israel, and so I assumed if I had no bandwidth to listen to podcasts, most other people might not either. But that being said, I am back this week with a lot of love and still a lot of heartache. I'm sending it out to all of you who are aching. And I think about the work that I do and how hard we work to put babies into this world and beautiful parents and make things easier. And then I think about the disgusting, raging violence and attacks that are happening, what feels like a world away, but are not a world away. And so I just want to make space to hold both here. And so today we're talking with the amazing Mary Adkins. And it's not that I want to get back to some semblance of normalcy. Nothing is normal now. But I do want to get back into telling these stories of what families look like and what careers for women look like and what it looks like to balance those two. So Mary has a beautiful story of reimagining what her life would look like what that life does look like, and how she helps others share their stories too. Enjoy. Hi, Mary. Hi, Abby. (laughs) Hydrate, hydrate. (laughs) I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for being on the Fertility Check. Oh, I'm really honored to be here. So, you know, we talk about the intersection of fertility, motherhood, and career. And I think for you, those do all intersect pretty favorably. So which place feels best to start? Do you want to start with your fertility journey? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Okay. So um, I, I, my husband and I decided to start trying to have a baby um, in 2017, the summer of 2017. And I was 35. I always forget how old I was. Isn't that funny? We forget what age we yes. are. Yes, yes. Um, I was 35. I thought, eh, it's time. We got married. We had been married when I was 33. So we were like two years into marriage. And it was just like, now feels like the right time. Um, and we we started trying. And on the first cycle, like, you know, the first month that I was ovulating, um, got pregnant. And the oh my pregnancy. Gosh. That's yeah. Obvious. I mean, it, I know we're going to get to more of the story, but even that in itself is somewhat of a miracle these days. Yeah, it felt it felt very fortunate. It felt really serendipitous. Um, I, yeah, I was, um, it was like long story short, it was a pretty, um, pretty seamless pregnancy. I, besides a diagnosis with gestational diabetes at 20 weeks that I had to manage, like otherwise it all, it all went pretty smoothly. Um, so other than a, a diagnosis with gestational diabetes at 20 weeks, it was a pretty smooth pregnancy. Had my son in April, 2018, best day ever, like fell in love with him immediately. Just was like, I love being a mom, you know, just obviously, I mean, you know, there were complex like ups and downs, feelings about my body, all of that stuff was complex, but just the part about like becoming a mom was just wondrous. And I loved it so much. And so it didn't even, I like I just knew I wanted to have 
at least another kid. It was like, oh, I'll definitely have another kid. Just, you know, it'll be when we're ready. And I remember at the hospital, actually, the we had him in a hospital in Manhattan and the nurses would say to the moms as they left, see you in two years. It was just mm. a thing. They'd be like, see you in two years. And I remember hearing that and thinking like, oh yeah, I'll probably be back here in two years. Mm. <laughs> um, and so that was 2018. So 2019, we were, we'd been living in New York. We moved to Tennessee for my husband to start grad school. And um, and the pandemic hit, right? Like beginning of 2020. And there was, I, I don't know, I guess in, in retrospect, I look back and it's like, oh, I'm, you know, now I'm tw- turning 36. Now I'm turning 37. And I, a friend has even asked, like, were you not thinking like, oh, we should probably try to have a second kid? But I really wasn't because mm-hmm. it was like people were giving birth in hospitals without their partners there. And like everybody was afraid of dying. Like it just didn't. It seemed like a terrible time to try to have another right. kid. So Plus it was you like, were like parenting an infant. I mean, a toddler was yes. so hard in that time. Yeah, And it happened in try one for you. So you were like, well, if we try again, it means we're having another one. It's not like we're just trying. Yes. Right. Like I think that's what happens. Yeah. You think whatever happened to you the first time will happen again. Yes. So, um, and frankly, I, I was so naive about infertility, about fertility struggles, about pregnancy loss. Like I didn't, I, as far as I knew, I only knew one friend who had had one miscarriage and then seven weeks later got pregnant and had that child. So like, it just felt so foreign to me. I knew it was something that existed, but it was like, well, like exactly what you just said. When are we, so when it's time to start trying, it's just going to work out. So we, my, my husband in the meantime is like, well, I just got to finish grad school. It was a rigorous grad program. It was intense. He was stressed out all the time. He's like, let's just get through grad school. So he graduates from, from grad school in May, 2021. We're like this summer, we're going to start trying to have another baby. Well, we ended up going on a vacation, a couple's vacation to celebrate his graduation, getting pregnant on the vacation. I was elated. It was like, this is amazing. This is perfect. Like we weren't even trying, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just like, I feel so lucky. Like I rem- I took a pregnancy test at a Walmart in Oklahoma city <laughs> where we were visiting his family at 7am on a Sunday morning. It was empty. <laughs> and like, I had just driven there pretending that I needed snacks, but really I thought I was pregnant and I was, and I drove back to their hat to my in-laws house, like, b- like the windows down blaring, some country song that was on the radio being like, I'm like living my best life. I was like, so happy to be pregnant again. And for me too, I should say that like pregnancy was very also wrapped up in body image. Like I had, I loved my body pregnant in a way I had never really Mm. felt about it, not pregnant. So I was glad to be pregnant again for reasons more than just a baby being on the way. It was like, I get to like myself again, which is Mm. its own thing. Um, But long story short, like we, so that I had a missed miscarriage at eight weeks. Sorry. Um, We, thank you. And that, that was, um, that was really traumatic. I mean, I would probably say that first one was the most traumatic thing that has had ever happened to me and really has ever happened to me. And I think what made it even more traumatic was that I so unintentionally gaslit myself about it 
Mm. which is also why I'm so grateful for podcasts like yours and people like you who talk about this because I just didn't, I thought it was supposed to not be a big deal. I tried to tell myself it wasn't a big deal. Mm. I would felt like from society, I was also getting all these signals that it was not supposed to be a big deal. So it was like, why does this feel like the worst thing that ever happened to me? And yet it's supposed mm. to be something I just bounce back mm. from. That's so interesting. I want to unpack that a little bit. Let's unpack that yeah. a little bit, shall we? Yeah. Um, why did you feel like it didn't, it wasn't supposed to be a big deal? Because at this point, is it like people are starting to talk about it now and like they've been through it. So why can't I just get through it? Do you remember what you were feeling? No one around me was talking about it. Like mm. it was, I, I, it was the biggest elephant in the room. It was like, cause I remember we went and I, I don't mean if any of my friends were listening to this, I don't blame you, mm-hmm. but we went on this, this first vacation friends vacation that we hadn't, we hadn't seen our friends in two years because of the mm-hmm. pandemic. And we had this big friends vacation planned and I was going to announce my pregnancy at this vacation. Cause I was going to be like 10 weeks. And Instead, I I miscarried like two days before the vacation. So instead, I just texted them all in advance being like, I was going to tell everybody I was pregnant, but I'm actually going through a miscarriage right now. Like, and everyone, of course, was very nice. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) But at the friend's vacation, no one brought it up. No one said, I mean, it it Mm. was like, uh, and it was, it, it was so intense. It was such an intense vacation because I was so happy to be with my friends and I was genuinely delighted to see them. And like, we were laughing and drinking and swimming. And, and at the same time, like, it felt like an elephant was sitting on my chest and like, no one was talking about it. Like I was Mm -hmm. literally miscarrying. (laughs) Like I like was, I like was bleeding actively. And, but I, I'm looking back, I know like no one knew what to say. Like it's such a, it's so taboo, but I, and I understand why, like, People don't know if you want it to be a big deal. They don't know if you want to say something. Um, I mean, I now know that. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say a friend of mine wrote a beautiful book about losing his teenage children. Devastating. And he said, it's so true what people say, which is they feel like if they bring it up or say the name, all of a sudden they're going to remind you of that as if you're not thinking about it all day, every day anyway. Right. And so to us going through it, it ends up feeling like they're skirting around it and ignoring it, but they think they're doing the right thing because they don't want to remind you, even though you're sitting there in pain already. Yes. I have chills from you saying that. And I, I have a friend who, um, wrote about how she ended up having us. It was actually not a stillbirth. Her daughter lived for about eight minutes or nine minutes, Um, But she said one person ever, and her daughter's name was Sloan, she said one person ever said, tell me about Sloan. Mm -hmm. And she, I'm like, gonna cry talking about it. She's like, it it meant so much to be able, she's like, I didn't even realize how much I needed someone to just ask me that question, like, Mm -hmm. and let me talk about it because it, yeah, exactly. It's not like we're not aware of it. Like bringing it up isn't going to be like, Oh, you're right. I actually hadn't been thinking about that. Right. Or like, screw Um, you for bringing that up. I was doing fine until like, you're not doing fine on the inside. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that was rough. And then basically, I, I mean, after that, we continued to try, I got pregnant again. 
I had another missed miscarriage. I got pregnant again. I had another missed miscarriage. And this was all over about eight months. So it was like a very, very short window of time of just boom, boom, boom. Loss, um, loss, loss. Loss, loss, loss. And like to the point, it was so fast that I I was not processing any of this. It was just like piling on trauma after trauma. Yeah. Um. And then going into IVF and like that not working. So mm. there were that that was the and so here we are. So like now I I have one one son. He's his name is Finn. He, he's the one who was born in 2018. And this is where we are. And we are, you know, n- not only no longer trying, but we are committed to like we're done. Like this yeah. is our family. We are a family of three. And that, that was like a, you know, as I know your fertility journey was like, this has been incredibly life altering and not just in that I've landed in a life that I didn't expect to have, but also like, I think fertility struggle brings up so much stuff (laughs) that you you have to face about yourself, like expectations and dreams and entitlement. I mean, I think there was part of me that was like, I'll get this because I always get what I want when I work hard enough for it. Yes. And having to face that I couldn't make this happen. Like I couldn't actually control this. I could not make my body have a baby was like my whole world turned upside down. I mean, it's like I live on a different planet now. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm so curious, a couple things. You talked briefly, and I don't know how much you share about this in general, but about your body image and pregnancy mm-hmm. and making peace with that, going through infertility, all the things, uh, through IVF specifically and, and everything that it does for your body. What was that like for you? Was that, were you kind of like, I don't care, let me just get to this end goal in that moment? And do you feel like that sort of shaped how you maybe took control over the narrative of what your three-person family looks like? Yeah, very much. I I actually think of my year, sometimes I call it like my year of miscarriages. I think of my year of miscarriages as truly a gift. I mean, it was the hardest year I've ever had, but it's, sorry. (laughs) Take your time. um, It also gave me an appreciation for my body that I had never had before because I I realized at one point that like I had spent as much time that year ushering lives out of the world as I had ushering them in. Like mm. I I had held these like deaths in my body and I would miscarry for weeks. Even after a DNC, I would bleed for weeks and um, it happened every time. So it really was like months in total that I was, it it, it felt like I, I was this, this house for like a spirit that was here for a minute and then wasn't. And in that way, I started to think of pregnancy differently too, like not as a means to an end, but as a state of being. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I realized at one point during my second miscarriage Like I just had this, uh, I came home from the appointment where we found out that there was no heartbeat. And um, that day, coincidentally, a pair of maternity jeans that I had ordered off of Poshmark arrived in the mail. (laughs) 
And even on Poshmark, they were like really expensive. <laughs> I, spl- I had splurged. So I got them out and I was like, great. These actually look even better in person than they looked online. Um, and I just put them on anyway. And yeah. I looked in the mirror and I liked them. I liked how they looked. I liked how they felt. And I just had this moment of tenderness toward myself where I realized like, you're still pregnant. You're yeah. like, you're not any less pregnant than you were this morning. You just like, there's not a heartbeat there now, but like you still, your body still believes itself to be pregnant. You still have all the hormones going through yourself. And like, I I just, there's something about that felt really profound to me. Like it, and I don't even know exactly why, it just helped me see my body as not just a tool, like not just a means to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, like it helped me to think of pregnancy as a state that I am in, regardless of whether there was going to be a live baby at the end. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the spirit was still in the house at that moment. Yeah. And like, even, and even if it wasn't, my body believed it was like, my body was still sending, I hadn't bled yet. So like your body was trying to do what it's it's, right. Yeah. And like, so there was something about that, that really helped me, um, Mm. that helped me respect, I think respect my body to a degree. And then and then also just coming out of that year, um, I think was a real wake up call because it had forced me to recognize how much easier it was to be kind to myself when I was pregnant versus when I wasn't. And that was holding up a mirror in a way that I think I, I know I needed a mirror held up like, mm-hmm. like, oh, I let myself like, this is interesting, Mary, you let yourself nap or you say no to things you don't want to do when you're pregnant, but when you're not pregnant, you yeah. feel guilty if you don't work out for 45 minutes a day and like would never take a nap and don't let yourself eat chocolate. I mean, you know, it's like, where right. are these, these double standards are like mm. really glaring. Um, and that's, that's been a really tough thing. I mean, that's not like an overnight fix, right? Like where I get, we're all immersed in right. the thin ideal and <laughs> No, but I talk about this a lot, even as a fertility coach, because, or really an infertility coach, because once we have the baby, ideally, society has told us after a long time of being like, just deal with all the, you know, crap that comes with it. We finally got to a place in society where they say, no, get the help, get the doula, get the lactation consultant, get the night nurse, because it's in service of the baby, right? Even though it's in service of the mother, it's like all justified for this baby. But when we're going through infertility, there are so few resources and it's already, you're already resenting that you have to pay for all these additional outside helps. And so you put yourself through torture, but it's like, then you finally get to maybe the point where pregnancy ideally happens or birth happens. And it's like, you can't, it's like justified to take care of yourself in a different way. It's crazy. Yes, Yes, it really is. And it's, it's so, and I, you know, speak like, and then the IVF thing is a whole other level of that. Well, let me just say, I really admire not only that you went back for a third loss, (laughs) 
I mean, obviously you didn't go back Mm -hmm. for the loss, but that you had enough hope to try again. And I think that's very hard for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I admire that in you. And then to have to then be like, maybe we should try IVF. It's like a whole nother level of openness that you need to come to. And I'm curious how you and your partner, your husband came to that decision, even though it didn't turn out how you wanted it to at the time. um, I'm just curious how you guys talked about it and how you were there for each other or if it was hard on you. I do think ultimately all of this brought us closer. I mean, I, I'm actually working on a memoir about this right now. So I, and at one point I was writing about this and how we, you know, it felt like we had like walked through fire together. I mean, it was just incredibly bonding. Like yes. no one else went through this. Right. Um, like again, I'm going to tear up. <laughs> um, it's okay. So I do that was like a big silver lining of this whole process is that it like I, I, in my memoir, I wrote like, I've never felt more married as I did at the end of all of this, Mm. because it just felt like we like, you know, gone through a gauntlet together. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I was really, we are a couple who, um, with one kid, we both wanted one kid. Second kid was more my dream. And he was like, great, that would be good. But like, he also would have been okay if I didn't want a second kid. So like, I was really the one kind of revving the engine, um, particularly after the three miscarriages, like he was really ready to stop because it had been brutal so that was like going into IVF was really like our last, like you were sort of driving that last. Yeah. Go. Yeah. I will tell you not, you know, I tell you this not to make it feel uh, small, but to make it feel validating that this is a very common pattern with secondary infertility. Mm. The woman is majorly driving it. Mm. And the, and the man is like when it's a cis hetero relationship um, and the man is very confused as to what, not confused, but just like, I'm good with what we have right now. So in terms of like psychological experiments down the road, I'm so curious why that is. Because I know that men grow up dreaming of what their family might look like. It's not like they don't, but I don't know if it's because we physically carry it. And after the loss, it's like we have to prove something to ourselves more or we're just pushing for this dream even more. I'm not sure, but it's a very common pattern I see. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I also have a couple of friends who t- you're right totally follow their relationships also totally follow this pattern and i think i don't know just in terms of the psychology i i think unpacking letting go of the dream of the second child for me mm-hmm. was incredibly difficult mm-hmm. i mean I unpacking that is also difficult. Like, I don't know why it was so hard. Like, I do know I've never had to let go of a major dream before. Like, I've, you know, I think they're like, I dreamed of falling in love and getting married. That happened. I dreamed of having a first kid. That happened. Like, for the most part, the things I've wanted, I've made come true. And if I haven't, in my head, I still can. You know, it's like, like, yeah, there's time. There's time. Like there's still time for me to learn French. Like I could do that when I'm 50. Um, but fertility is one of those things that like 
whether it's aging out of it, which we will all do eventually, or it's a, you know, a complication of another sort, like I, I couldn't make this happen. And letting go of that was just something I'd, I'd never had to let go of a dream this big before. Yeah. It's, I think that's the key piece for most people in secondary infertility is I never imagined if it didn't work, right? We only imagine what it looks like with yeah. the white picket fence and the 2.5 kids and right, because we just assume we'll get there. And so to have to adjust that, is, it's a big loss that yeah. we're, it's like we're adjusting and processing the loss. And by the way, this is all still very fresh for you. This still just happened. Yeah. You know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But you've been very open and you like talking about it. I think it's, or I don't know if anyone likes talking about it, but you, I mean, in general, let's segue a little bit into your work life. You believe in the power of story. So I know you share your story. So tell me about, yeah. tell me about what you do and how this has come into play. So I'm a novel, I mean, I'm now also a memoirist, but I was a novelist before. I published three novels with HarperCollins and I teach novel writing um, and now also memoir writing. Um, but as all of this was happening, I was in the process of pitching my fourth novel um, to my publisher. And essentially, after all of this, I basically couldn't write that novel. Like, was like, mm-hmm. I can't write this novel. I need to write a memoir about this. One reason was that it was, I knew it would be cathartic for me. I mean, I'm a writer. So, like, yeah. I've always processed through writing, even as a child. So like, I knew that I needed to write about this to process it. But also when I was going through my first miscarriage, I was looking for, I I always go to memoirs. I go to memoirs to feel less alone. Like I, I just, that's where I go. I'm, I'm not a religious person as an adult. So like, I did not find solace in that. I go, I tend to find solace in other human stories. So I went to look for memoirs and I couldn't find them. Like I found, I found one and I say one kind of in quotation marks because it wasn't really about pregnancy loss. It was about other stuff and there happened to be a pregnancy loss Mm. in it. Mm. Um, And then I found one about stillbirth, which was heartbreaking, but like a very different kind of experience and nonetheless read it, loved it. Mm -hmm. Um, But by the time I had gone through this whole experience, I was like, I, we, we need more of these stories out there. And I, I want to write this just because there was so much I had gone through that. Like if, if I were to go through it again, I would want, I would want to read about someone having had these, had these feelings and these thoughts that like, you know, I wasn't proud of, like there were times too, it made me bitter. I was jealous. I was um, like doing the whole, like, the universe isn't fair thing. Why does this person get it? And I don't like, those are all, I think really natural thoughts to be having. But when you are all alone in this and you, you don't have other people's stories, like it just layer, it, it's, it's another layer that you have to deal with, right? Like the guilt of it, feeling bad about it. Like, um, so yeah. So then I ended up working on this memoir and and that's really the intersection. I mean, now, you know, I've I've gone from folks, I mean, I'm sure I'll write fiction again, but I I've gone from being a fiction writer to now um to now writing a memoir 
that I have finished and that will come out sometime next year. And that is, um, that was a really profound experience because I, I also feel like it helped me understand the power of memoir and like how healing it can be for people to write their stories. Mm. So when you coach people in writing, do you do memoir only now since you've done a memoir or did you always uh, coach on memoirs as well? I was always willing to do it because sometimes people would be like, well, listen, can you like, will you coach me with memoir? And I'll be like, okay, let me, I'll do my best, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was like, yes, sometimes it used to be Mm -hmm. like, yes, sometimes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now it's like, bring it on. (laughs) Yes. Like I, I get it now. And I feel like I can speak from personal experience now. Yeah. Yeah. How does it feel different for you in terms of the writing process? Does it? Is it more, was it more emotional or, or do you feel like even when you write the novel, you're as emotional with your characters? No, Mm. no, not, not. I mean, this was, um, it, I guess that this, of course, this memoir was specifically writing from trauma and not all memoir is trauma, but this, since this one was, and it was like unprocessed trauma, like I processed it through writing it. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't, this wasn't like 10 years later after I had already done a lot of therapy. Right. It Mm -hmm. was like. It was During. Like eight months after it happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, it, I would shake. I mean, I would literally tremble while I was typing because it was like the first time my body was reliving what I had gone through. Um, and I, I, so I even at the time really had to educate myself on that. Like what was happening? Like how... I mean, I read The Body Keeps the Score. I ended up working with a, a trauma coach, like basically just learning how trauma lives in the body and like what was happening to me when I was returning to those memories, which was that my body was remembering what it was like in that moment. And it was viscerally going back to that place. Um, but this is why I think it was it was healing for me and and how cool I think writing can be in terms of healing because you go back to that place, but now you have tools you didn't have before. Like you have perspective, you have the safety of like the written page where you can process, you can say feelings aloud that maybe at the time, like you didn't feel comfortable verbalizing or not even equipped to verbalize because you're in fight or flight mode. Um, you know, you can like bring your awareness to the space around you and like the, you know, being grounded. Um, and so, and you can just understand it, you know, through writing. I think the beautiful thing is that we can actually change our understanding of what's happened to us. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that's incredible. Like we can see it in a different way than we saw at the time. And, and it's really empowering to do that. You know, like it's empowering to be able to go, okay, like I can't, I can't make my body have a baby. I cannot change my fertility, but I can understand the story of what happened to me. And I can share that and I can have power over that narrative. And like, I can also figure out what my takeaways are from that and how I've changed now. And that's a, it's a different kind of empowering, but it's still empowering. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I think also part of the processing of a loss is how out of control it was of us. We did everything right. We took all the vitamins. We did every took it right. And it doesn't matter. So this is a way, like you're exactly saying, to shift the narrative of the pieces that you can control, which is your body, healing from it, how you think about it, all those things that are going to last you a long time, you know? Yeah. Um, Does Finn ask about it? No, I don't. It's kind of weird because I guess I've thought of, someone's asked me that before. Mm. And I, I mean, he was, he was three and four as all of this was happening. So definitely like with it, you know, right. <laughs> like all, old enough to pick up on something. And so he would occasionally see me crying and I would say, he'd say like, why are you crying? Um, and I would say like, I just lost something that makes me feel sad. You know, when you lose something you want it makes you feel sad but that that was as much explanation as we gave um i mean when he's older he will he will know about this for sure i mean mm-hmm. he wrote a memoir about it so like yeah. he's going to know as much as he wants yeah. um but yeah not yet and just in closing two more things one if you had been one of the friends at the weekend when everyone was mm-hmm. ignoring what would you have said to your person who was going through this. So in, in turn, like, what do you, what do you wish you had heard? Like, how can people, I always think it's important. How can friends best support their loved ones going through this? I think just ask, just talk about it. Like, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Like acknowledge it, right? Like, and I think that that's another gift that I got from that year that I used to be the person who doesn't bring it up. Mm-hmm. And now yes. I'm the first person to bring it up. Like mm-hmm. I saw my friend into my friend in the airport the other day and her husband has cancer. So it's like, first thing it's like, let's talk about it. And of course she wants to talk about it. I saw my other friend whose daughter just died and I'm like, let's talk about it. Like, tell, how are you doing? Tell you don't like, and then someone else is standing there. It's like, let's hear. Why don't, why don't we hear? Like, do you want to tell about your daughter? Like, it, it's just, I, I now understand that it's, yeah you are not making them uncomfortable by bringing it up. They mm-hmm. want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And if they and don't. Maybe not always. And maybe, But then yes, let them tell you, right? Let them tell right. you, I don't want to talk yeah. about it. But like, at least you feel like you've opened the door. Yeah. You've acknowledged the thing, the big thing in their life that they are probably literally thinking about 99% of their day. And like, I... It, probably will make them feel less alone, even if they don't want to talk about it. Like you said, like let them make that call. So that was a, that's a really big shift. And I'm really, I'm really glad to have this perspective now. Yeah. And then I'm sure you have several of these as a writer, but like, what is one cliche phrase, piece of advice, like something that you think about all the time or that you take with you into your writing? Um, the one that just popped into my head is I think an Ernest Hemingway quote that I do think about sometimes. And on one hand, it can be a lot, I'm just gonna tell you, on one hand, it can be a lot of pressure, but on the other hand, I I think it's kind of beautiful. It's just write, just sit down and like write the truest sentence you know. Mm. And I, and if you just keep doing that over and over, you're gonna write something beautiful. And I I really like that because it's so simple and because it has nothing to do with skill or education. It's just, we all know something true. I love that. So just write a sentence that's true and then write another sentence that's true. 
And if you keep going, it's going to be good. Mm, I love it. Well, I'm happy to share your story with everyone. And I hope that anyone out there who's looking to maybe write their book will come and find you. Thanks, Abby. Thanks, Thanks so for much being for having here. Me. My pleasure. I just want to say that when we stopped recording, Mary told me I made her cry three times and she has never cried on a podcast. So I feel very validated, like my work is done. Much like Mary, I like to make sure I get the full story and I feel like I did. Thank you so much for listening. Please share this episode with somebody who is struggling with pregnancy or infant loss. I think it's so important this month as we continue to honor pregnancy and infant loss awareness as it comes to an end to talk about how we can support and be there for each other. Please rate and follow and subscribe and tag and all the things. And I will see you next week with a brand new episode of The Fertility Check. Thanks. Thanks.